Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, on the podcast today, we have uh, Rola Anan, El Anan. Is that right? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yes. Welcome, Rola. Welcome. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, before we get started, I just want to uh, uh, acknowledge uh, that I am uh, producing this podcast on the lands of the Tlaman, Klehus, Homoko, and Comox uh, First Nations, uh, who were who are, I, I suppose, for, for your information, that those are our indigenous, the indigenous people of, of the land here. Um, uh, and in Canada, uh, we we call them, I think, well, I think, I think it's in other countries too, but they, they're, they're called First Nations because they're, they're independent. Uh, uh, well, they're trying to be independent nations. Some of them actually have treaties with the government in their own, and they are, mm-hmm. they are self-governed. Others are kind of working their, their way to, towards that. But, um, um, but yeah, these, these, uh, four First Nations were, you know, sort of before the colonizers came over and took over everything, there were no borders, there were no lines. And all of all of what we call North America, uh, they refer to as Turtle Island. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was just one, you know, one big nation of many, many tribes and many, many communities. And uh, yeah, so just uh, grateful to be able to work here on uh, on the lands of, of mostly the Tlaman people, but uh, it's it looks like the island is sort of depending on the land masses and the waters are shared by four different uh, First Nations. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Um. So, Rola is um, uh, it's it's six p.m. in in, in Rola's town and seven a.m. in mine as as we talk across the world. Rola right now is hanging out in in Qatar. Is that right, Rola? Yes, yes, I'm in Doha right now. I've been here for a year. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, and and before that, you were in you were in uh, in Lebanon. Yes. Yeah. I and, spent ten years in Lebanon, and before that, another ten years in Nigeria. Oh, I don't think I don't think we yeah. talked about that before. Okay, wow. Yeah. So you've been you've been you've been around. Yeah. Did you practice in Nigeria as well, or were you doing something different there? Uh, in Nigeria, it was. Uh, very colorful full of different things it was special education in the beginning and in the end in the middle I did a lot of uh, human resource uh, Mm. quality assurance working with the Mm. people checking motivations working on communication in the workplace very interesting and very uh, cross-sectional but also like so much is related to psychology and behavior and organizational behavior yeah 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 really cool really cool yeah I've got an interview coming up in a couple of weeks with a, a couple of uh, Nigerian uh, behavior analysts. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's that really cool. That would be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, before we kind of get into sort of uh, the stuff you're doing right now, maybe you can just tell us a bit about kind of how, how, how you got into ABA uh, and how you got into the field. Sure. So the beginning was my uh, personal experience. Uh, I had a brother with Down syndrome when I was mm. 12. And he opened our eyes, all of us, to something that is called special needs, that we are all different. So I started uh, with special education, being motivated to help him. 
And from there on, I stayed in the field for many years, like five, six years. And then I felt like there is more, more to learn, more to acknowledge. Mm. Um, I tried to find a program online. I couldn't. I was living in Nigeria. Mm. took me some years to find the master's in uh, ABA in Arizona State University. That was 2013. Mm. So that was the beginning of the journey of applied behavior analysis. And then everything else unfolded after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so why... Being in Nigeria, why why did why did you think ABA was sort of the direction to go? Uh, sometimes we say it's the mind is seeking what you find what you're seeking. So I was trying to find out what is offered in psychology today that can serve more the people, like bring people together, bring more mastery at work, but also make it a happier workplace, a safer workplace. So to begin with, I started from the workplace, considering like how can we help people perform better, but also perform with more uh, sense of satisfaction, sense of achievement, sense of reward. And uh, I was looking for a psychology program, actually, and I found that there is applied behavior analysis. And for me, that was like, wow, although we did study special education many years before, I don't remember learning ABA, even in a very small part of the special education diploma. And that was mind opening for me, like, oh, wow, there's a whole new field but maybe it's not new. Maybe it's new to me. It has yeah, existed yeah. somewhere. And uh, and again, it might be because we uh, focused on some populations and not the others. I think in the special education diploma, the focus was more on learning difficulties and uh, people who struggle in schools. Mm. So they were identified as kids with learning difficulties. Sure. And then maybe autism was not so much uh, brought up at these days. We're talking 1999 when I finished my diploma. It was not so much spoken about. It was still not uh, enough uh, shared. So by 2013, maybe 10 years later or more, autism has become one of the most important topics on the table. And uh, then the program started to show up more. You know, Mm -hmm. universities took more responsibility in creating course sequences. There was more demand and more identification of uh, needed skills. So I think we met each other on the way. I found the program and I read about it and I found like, wow, this is something, something really interesting to begin from. Mm, Awesome. And so that was 2013. So at that point, were you now in Lebanon? I actually returned to Lebanon in 2013. I had Mm. just in my hand uh, uh, an acceptance in the university. And I, as soon as I returned, I started the program. Gotcha, gotcha. So... Maybe you could tell us. So, you're, you were you are you like born born in Lebanon? Is that where you were yes, kind of started yes. initially? Okay, gotcha. Maybe we could talk just a little bit about sort of ABA and autism in Lebanon. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I know you. Uh, I think you're you're the current president, right, of the ABA yes. Lebanon yes. chapter. Yes. So they, they obviously mm-hmm. they have a chapter. That's something, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, how long? You know, like what's sort of the the history of kind of ABA in Lebanon as you kind of know it? Yeah. So like all the other countries, uh, the field started to show up in different institutions and in different minds. And uh, we started to identify more learners with autism and uh, mostly special educators, because most of us have had their uh, original degrees in special education or psychology. So, so the field started to show up and then we started to show interest. Autism is becoming more uh, also uh, available in Lebanon. We're noticing more uh, cases uh, of students 
struggling with autism, but also uh, pediatricians are becoming more aware of it. Neuropediatricians mm. are also, uh, we had days, uh, difficult days originally. We had days of denial. We had days of, uh, uh, we can't uh, diagnose yet. Uh, these are traits, but this is not real autism. And then, mm. you know, as as uh, people, we follow what the doctors say, because originally by uh, by social uh, learning, we we trust doctors and we think what they say is right. So parents started to repeat to repeat the same conversations that this is not autism, but these are traits of autism. It's still mm. early to identify. So we had different different groups of people. Some of the parents were just like ignoring whatever anyone was saying and felt like, no, something is wrong. I need to attend to it. They started ABA intuitively. They were working with their kids. They were creating educational activities. Uh, so intuitively, they they fell on the floor without knowing that they're practicing part of what we call ABA. Mm. Other professionals started to find that this is something like much needed. This There are programs offered. They stepped in. And then later on, I think the doctors joined, not initially. They joined. We had conversations with them. Uh, they started to see that, no, these things are showing up. Media is talking. Everyone is talking. So mm. they kind of went back and did a small part of their homework where they started to look closer at the kids, closer at the developmental milestones and try to take more responsibility in attending to developmental needs rather than just like, does he have fever or not? Is he eating well or not? And mm. uh, I think things came together. Uh, According to what I see in the Arab world today, I think Lebanon has has gone to a good place before our revolution and all the economic crisis stepped in. Mm. Uh, we did develop the chapter in 2017. Mm. We're still uh, holding on to the chapter very dearly and very uh, responsibly. We're facing a lot of challenges in terms of funding, in terms of keeping BCBAs on board, because so many of the original founders of the chapter including myself, have left Lebanon, but we're still there with the cause and with the heart. Uh, today, uh, we are uh, expanding to more members who have newly became certified, and uh, the board is expanding. We have an advisory board also, which is trying to take over also some of the major uh, guidelines that we need to attend to. So we're trying to to bring this body together among all the challenges and step forward with the most important for us today in autism, in the cause, and in the funding in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a lot. So it was really, uh, it sounds like ABA coming to Lebanon was really parent-driven yes. initially. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, when and, I started my yeah. program, we had two BCBAs in Lebanon, only two. Oh, wow. Yeah, and today we're like, 20 who have been in Lebanon and in and out, but then we have like, I don't know how many in the world. Lebanese have been all over the world and we mm. are in contact with the many uh, Lebanese BCBAs uh, over all the oceans. Nice. And, and are, are some of those Lebanese BCBAs like have joined ABAL even though they're around the world? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so and there's cool. a major yeah. interest and actually it is so rewarding to hear from them before we even contact them. They've sent mm. messages, they've sent their motivations across that we want to be there, we want to try and help, see what mm. we can offer. So, yeah. You said you said a lot of them, a lot of behavior analysts have left. Was that because of the revolution and all those sorts of things? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. because of the revolution, because of the crisis. We had a big uh, failure of services in Lebanon, and this has also affected even our uh, 
our uh, online services. So we we reached a point that even if we want to continue to operate and we want to reach out to people online, we had transportation issues, we had uh, fuel problems, we couldn't travel, wow. we were canceling sessions. So we were trying to jump to the online uh, options. But also there, we had internet shutdowns for many hours of the day. And it became like completely mm. disabling for us. We couldn't move anymore for many of us. So we felt like we needed to be in a different place. Maybe if we are there, we can offer Lebanon something much better than because we on the personal level started to struggle too. And frustration was more dominant. And uh, we had little solutions offered from the uh, public sector, from people who were supposed to show up with more responsibility towards these communities. So some of us have decided to leave and connect from abroad. Mm-hmm. Just for my brain, when, when, well, two questions. When did this sort of unrest begin in Lebanon? How long ago was this? 2019, October 2019 oh, was not that the beginning of what we call, yeah, what we call uh, October Revolution. Mm. And then we had COVID coming in, in around 2020, and then it stayed for another two years. And then we had August uh, 4 blast, which was the second biggest blast in the world that was identified. And, uh, so we had like in, in four years, we had like a multi-layered trauma crisis, whatever wow. we wanted to call it. And, and before people were trying to pick up and try to stand on their feet, something new happens. And then we, we were losing more and more and more. So it has become really a very uh, traumatized state. Mm-hmm. Until recently, our last visit to Lebanon, we start to see that there are no big solutions offered from the government, if any, actually, but people are coming up with the solutions. People mm. together are thinking together. Uh, Lebanese have been known to be uh, very creative in crisis, very resilient. Mm. So we see that a lot of people abroad are connecting to people in Lebanon and communities are forming where a lot of help is coming, but now through the people. Wow. So this has been, I think, bringing some light and love to the people still standing yeah. there. Yeah, super resilient. Have uh, have things, I mean, that, that hasn't been very long, but have things started to stabilize at all? Or is it still pretty, is it still a crisis? On, on the governmental level, we don't see any solutions. No one is recording any solutions. We're still dropping. But on the, again, on the uh, indigenous level, on the human creativity level, yes, you do feel that the country has, uh, is coming up in different places. Lebanon is highly touristic, for example. So we see tourism activity really high yeah. and we're like so impressed and so excited to see it because yeah. tourists would, would hear that there is cholera in Lebanon, but no one cares. They love Lebanon. They will still go. They know that there is shortage of power, but then you see them there and they say, we're managing, we're with you people, like we love this place. There's so much energy there. There's so much generosity in Lebanon, so much offering. The land is Mm. beautiful. The nature is beautiful and people are uh, uh, very cheerful and joyful. And I think the other people who are coming to us, they're returning with this energy. So you find that there is more coping um business is doing a bit better. I'm not an economist to judge, but we hear from people that uh, some of them are working online, some of them are taking two jobs. Uh, they're using some of the help of the expatriate uh, members of their families, maybe to send a child to learn abroad, and then they stay to stay with their parents. 
So creative solutions are happening, but on the level of the people. On the government, mm. nothing uh, is promising yet. Mm. Mm. Well, well, it's certainly inspiring the, that the people are, yes, absolutely. Are, are doing so much. That's amazing. Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beale Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high-quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug-and-play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beale Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmgfreeconsult.com. That's bmgfreeconsult.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is Qatar, Q-A-T-A-R. Just sort of kind of culturally, I mean, uh, I know there's what, there's, there's, there's like 20 or something Arab states, something like that. Is that right? Like? The, the Arab League is sort of there's a, there's a lot of Arab Arab Arabic Arab countries right like in yes, the world yes absolutely yeah yeah and and so there and, and they do seem to seem to be uh, you know um, quite different yes yes and so I've had some conversations with some people about sort of you know autism in kind of the Arab context, but I imagine that's mm-hmm. quite quite different from place to place. I did an interview with a fella recently. Um uh he's a he's he's a Canadian now, but uh he's uh I think his his family's from from Syria and uh he's been he kind of did uh, talked a lot about sort of autism from kind of that that Syrian perspective. Yeah. Uh and then I, I had I'm having actually I'm having a colleague of yours on in a few weeks uh mm-hmm. um uh and, and i'm always struggling with pronouncing names uh asmahan is that right is that how we say it wow yes asmahan is one of the founders of ABA Lebanon. yeah yeah so she's coming on in a few weeks as well and she, she was she was telling me a little bit about sort of you know she was she was teaching me about uh sort of the 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 the, the arab league and that sort of thing it's all very new to me i'm mm-hmm. curious uh uh what Sort of from from kind of that Le- Lebanese kind of perspective, I know things mm-hmm. are, have have grown a lot in the last few years, and 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 you're see, as you said, you're seeing more diagnoses, and you're seeing more pediatricians getting on board. But kind of just kind of culturally, um, is is the way you kind of work with um, you know families and 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 kids and and, and autistic kids and whatnot. 
you know, are, are there some things you really need to be thinking about that that are that you know that make things kind of different when you're working with 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 in, in sort of the Lebanese culture versus maybe others? Well, every culture has its own uh, traits, cultural traits, and mm. uh, Lebanon is very much known to be uh, accepting diversity, and I mm. think it can be leading in the Arab world in that. Wow. Uh, I I identify from conversations we have on the other Arab uh, groups, uh, and this has been maybe before now there is a lot of upcoming like there's a lot of activity and it is beautiful mm -hmm. uh, but years before i think we we did uh maybe walk a bit forward with that before the arab the other arab countries came on board mm. so so there was more openness in lebanon to accept special needs as uh, a new uh like a new dimension of a family uh for us as a family, it was very new to us when we got our brother with, with Down syndrome. And then, mm. but all the other members now got to know that there is Down syndrome and this is a beautiful person and they have also their own potential and their own pathway. So, mm. so with every new evolving, uh, new families were learning about what does it mean? And then new schools were, uh, coming up with mainstream programs. We do, we did have some, some nice initiatives in the government's, uh, of uh, creating mainstream programs for the public schools. Unfortunately, in Lebanon, because of all the uh, events that we witnessed, like every few years you have something major that happens. So it, it uh, really uh, becomes a barrier for the continuity of the process. So you see the UN started mm. something here, and then after some years you ask about it, like where is the monitoring data of this project? Where is it now? And you find that the project is kind of like becoming diffused because there was no enough uh, attendance to the continuity of the project mm -hmm, or the funds mm -hmm. uh, were terminated or they just finished and then there was no renewal of funds. So we do face this and I hope in the Arab world uh, there looks to be more uh, continuity of funding in terms of this. And we hope also going back to Lebanon that we can establish this at one point mm -hmm. where the special needs population become like also very, very important and maybe more important than the other places where the funding is uh, mm, being affected. Uh, mm, mm. And also like we need to come out. We need we need to provide good education. It needs to be mm. continuous. We need to get college. Mm. Whatever that word of college means, like they need to become independent, safe and happy. And for me, that's what college means. It means an autonomous learner that. So if the if colleges today are not offering mm. that, they might want to revisit actually. Yeah. their sense of existence and what they are offering. So hopefully, hopefully from where we started, uh, we will continue to find solutions uh, for our special populations, uh, support mm. for our special parents. They are struggling a lot, but believe me, if you hear their stories, you will be impressed. They're very resilient. They're very, uh, uh, they believe so much in their children and they do a lot mm. of effort. And I think this is part of our cultural identity that we try to find solutions. Uh, we're not so dependent on other resources because life in Lebanon has taught us that we need to be mm -hmm. independent. We need to have our own resources. There were little days in Lebanon when we trusted the government or relied on public resources. Yeah. So you find every community creating its own resources. Sometimes it's sad, but sometimes it's inspiring because it's like, well, we can't keep on whining and blaming and shaming and at the end, you can take control of your own destiny, create your own mm. resources, and and create the path you want to walk mm -hmm. on. At least you mm -hmm. and your children mm -hmm. and the family 
that you belong to and maybe the community, the smaller community, which is more like-minded, value-minded, and we need to survive. We need to survive and actually we need to enjoy. We have the right to enjoy life too. Something I think we've been hearing a lot in the news lately uh, about um, is, you know, around the Ukraine and the Ukrainian war. I mean, at least in the Western world, we've been hearing a lot about the Ukraine and, and uh, you know, uh, and in terms of kind of autism, you know, obviously there's the whole refugee thing. That's one thing. But there's also just sort of the 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 trauma associated with the war and 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 how it's sort of you know affecting these children you know i i heard stories of sort of um yeah kids you know kids you know refusing to enter bomb shelters and those sorts of things because of you know sensory things and whatnot yeah Um, yeah Yeah. of course we don't yes Yes. So there's there's two points here. One, we don't hear those stories about the other countries. We don't hear those stories about Lebanon. We don't hear those stories about Syria. Yes. We don't hear those stories about yes. you know mm-hmm. these other countries. That's that's one yeah. problem all on its own. Uh, you know that that we're very focused yeah. on sort of yeah you know countries with people that you know we, we don't seem to care as much about countries with people that don't look like us um but in, in the media uh, that's one thing but mm-hmm. my, my question's more about yeah um you know what's what's sort of that been like as far as working with uh you know these autistic kids and other kids with special needs in terms of the trauma i know you say the the lebanese peoples are are resilient and that's amazing and that's got to be great that's got to be good for the kids that their parents are strong and resilient but it's got to be hard for autistic kids to be resilient um um or maybe and so what what's what sort of happened like and how have you kind of navigated that yeah so after all these events there was a lot of trauma available in the autism populations we heard a lot of calls from parents uh, the major obstacle was reaching to uh, therapists and also uh, attending to their uh, mm. family needs, their basic needs. Today, we have families in Lebanon, many, many, many families, because Lebanon has never been on the poverty map. And today, Lebanon is wow. identified as a poor country. So mm. everything was very new for parents. Mm. Uh, and uh, some of them decided uh, consciously to stop services for their autistic children because they had to attend to the schooling of the other kids or the medical needs that they had, or or even the food. In Lebanon, you, if you need uh, to have electricity in your home, you might be having like four different uh, wow. accounts that give you electricity. You would be part of a generation, a generator rent. You will have your own UPSs and all sorts of battery stuff in your home. You might get electricity from the government if you get two hours per day. And some people are also putting their solar plants and all that mm. in order to conquer all this. So basic needs have been the priority right now. Mm. Uh, so many kids have been left out. We know that uh, it was traumatizing for every family that had a child with autism in Lebanon during the COVID, the lockdowns, the lack of resources. Uh, yeah. It was heartbreaking. Marriages were breaking down. Mm. Siblings were breaking down from the stress. Uh, things went out of control. Uh, we couldn't anymore talk to them about setting schedules, being predictable, providing routines walking out to the park and coming back. Uh, so mm. it got really, really messy. And uh, some of them mm. have just decided not to talk to us anymore. 
it's like, where do I start? What can you offer me? I have so many problems right now. Like, do you really think mm. I want to talk about the texting of my son? Or do I re- do you think I really care about toilet training anymore? I don't care. He's in uh, in pampers again. And then until we find another solution. And and it was just the reality. And mm. sometimes we couldn't do anything about it. And we just were there telling them, we're just there for you to listen to you. You can just call mm. us and mm. tell us how you're doing. We're there to listen. We're not going to be talking about the programs anymore. So we needed to connect to them on the compassionate level to know that we are also struggling. We also hear them, but it is all over the place. And and we just need to use our tolerance and patience and wait until things can unfold. So it was different, different emergences of, of help. Like, mm. However, it happened. And definitely it was inconsistent. Yeah. Absolutely, it was inconsistent. And breaking all sorts of... Uh, of uh, mm-hmm. security for you know and at the same time uh asman told me that uh lebanon is sort of is is what was she saying that, that you folks have taken like the most refugees from sort of syria and, and whatnot of, of, of yes. sort of any of any country yes. yeah and so yeah. so not mm-hmm. not only are all of the all of the Lebanese folks going through this crisis, but you have all these people from another country that are now. No. Yes, absolutely. Who have already been in a crisis and they were, uh, they migrated from their countries seeking yeah. safety and security with us. And then when our crisis hit, it was like, they were yeah. also facing another trauma. And, uh, you know, when trauma uh, sets in, uh, people also mm. struggle on the human level. And, uh, if if uh, if you're on the survival, you might tend to be less compassionate mm. sometimes or more judgmental. So we did have some some emergencies also of maybe some kind of racism or some kind of like, why do we have to take in more people when we ourselves are struggling? Yes, we took more people. We welcomed a lot of people when things were better for us, but mm. maybe it's time for them to go back home. And and this was a big conversation and you really need to expand yeah. a lot from in, internal expansion, you know, to really understand that, no, that's not how we deal with it. We need to find other solutions and uh, we need to continue to be human because that's the most important call. So mm. uh, it did outstretch yeah. our, our uh, resources because more people were there and less resources were there. But again, there was right. no governmental uh, presence. There was no sense of responsibility on the public level. All sorts of things can be found when people are aligned and united for a common cause with a good intention. Mm. But we did not see that good intention. And this is why we knew as people who who have some kind of vision of how things will unfold, we knew that the solutions are not yeah. going to be very prompt because good intention was not there. Claiming responsibility was not there. Any sense of remorse was not there. So many trauma, so much traumatic, traumatizing events were there, but then no one would show up just to say sorry or how can I be there for you? And these are governmental officials and you're earning salary from us in order to show up here. So all this absence of, of values mm. and, and the responsibility and the commitment showed us that we mm. need to be standing wow. up for each other. Have you, uh, sort of one, and I'll two more questions about this and then kind of move into some of the stuff you're doing now. Uh, have you, you or sort of has sort of the ABA kind of field in, in Lebanon um, 
has there been any work with sort of uh, Syrian families at all, or has it been mostly Lebanese? Or like, has there been any of that kind of with the refugees coming over? Because uh, I mean, imagine there's kids with autism that came over. Absolutely. I personally had one of the cases that I had to attend to, and uh, she was a girl with 10 years old, and that was before even our crisis. Mm -hmm. And then you can hear about the Syrian crisis, where the mother was saying, like, we went back to diaper yeah. uh, during the situation. I couldn't find water even to wash for my kids. Uh, they were separated. The mother and the children uh, migrated to Lebanon, and the father stayed there until he was able to pick up on the situation mm. and follow. Today they are in Switzerland. One of her, their kids mm. uh, was uh, talented in music and he was adopted wow. by the Swiss government to study uh, music. So the whole family was, uh, yeah, was given mm. the opportunity to go to Switzerland. And uh, the girl right now is in an institution. Uh, I don't know much about her. I know that uh, she mm. struggled a lot when she was in Lebanon because they were kind yeah. of picked up from their whole life and placed in a, a monastery where I visited them. They stayed in one room for maybe two years where they got a lot of compassion and love from the people around until they fixed their papers and this opportunity came yeah. on board. But this is an exception. For the others, I bet like they are there. Uh, they cannot benefit from... Um, in Lebanon, the institution does not uh, offer yet kids with autism who are non-Lebanese, any kind of support. Mm. And even for the Lebanese kids, because we had the uh, Dira crash, um, initially we had two governments that were supporting and funding the programs. So we had the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of, uh, Inter um, mm. Ministry of Social Affairs. And if you had a child with autism registered in a school, you can apply for the two ministries. And the school was getting some kind of money from here and there. And then the parents uh, were also adding some mm. of their own money. But eventually when the lira clashed, the money that was coming from the government was nothing. Like today the dollar has, uh, today the dollar is I think like 70,000 for $1 and the dollar was 1,500 wow. four years ago, three years ago. So so like, like today $50, um, no. Three years ago, $50 is today $1. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 50 is one. So the government used to pay $5,000 around this lump sum mm. to support a child with autism. And this $5,000, if we divide it by 50 wow. now, is $100. So if this cash is still coming, then this is the charge of a BCBA supervision wow. hour for one hour, $100. So mm -hmm. this is how bad the situation has uh, uh, arrived to financially. And accordingly, the services have been uh, struggling. We do acknowledge a couple of places who have made it through the crisis. Uh, they do get funding from outside. They kept themselves really, really in a very good structure. They're still offering, mm -hmm. but they are private institutions. But really being there and offering services, uh, I don't, uh, I don't identify any of the Lebanese associations that are offering the Syrian autistic mm. children mm. any support. Mm. I don't mm. think so, but that's my knowledge. I know that the Syrian uh, typical uh, students mm. have been joining our public schools right. in an extra schedule. Like the, stu the Lebanese students will go in the morning, the Syrian mm. students 
will go in the afternoon. And there was mm. a lot of international funding for this, for so students to be back to school. For the typical, Syrian, as you say, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what, uh, yeah, what yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I guess the, 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 that whole, the, the, you know, recession or whatever you'd call that for the, the dollar losing so much value, that's probably a part of the reason why mm -hmm. a lot of the behavior analysts left as well, I suppose, because they couldn't, they could no longer raise a family or, yes, you know, or, or afford, afford to be there. No, 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 absolutely. And one of the biggest, biggest things that we faced during this time is that our cash in the mm. bank, our saving was gone. So, so we had savings in the banks, all the Lebanese people and the banks stopped giving anything to the people and up till today like they just did it in a very very smart way where they yep. just increased the adaptation on the way so more shocks mm. on the way more adaptive skills on the way and then you're coping more with more uh, limitations but today uh, you can say no one was able to take out their savings from mm. Lebanon it's just numbers on screens except the people who were aware that it's going to happen so they were kind of like last minute uh doing mm. some kind of uh, transactions or the people who were involved in the corruption because they had some politicians supporting them of course by contacting the banks and forcing the banks to give them their money otherwise all the people who followed the the rules and were abiding by the regulations mm. lost their so savings. right now then what are what sort of the, the mission of of ABA Lebanon the, the 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 chapter like what's what's what are you what are you trying to do right now what's the today's today we are having some uh, meetings to deepen in where do we start from today we are deepening our uh, studying in hmm. our cultural resources uh, what Lebanon is very powerful about and how can we contribute to the hmm. ABA conversation in the Arab world, how can we connect, uh, expand our networks, expand our circles, because we know wherever we are in the Arab world, we are showing up for the cause and for the science, and we are succeeding. Uh, so uh, there definitely are some creative ways for us to uh, align all this power mm. with the ABA Lebanon chapter, become creative about uh, reaching out to more funding, also uh, training and expanding on people's skills on how do we wisely use these fundings? How can we empower the family, which is the most mm. important cell today in Lebanon? Uh, and uh, we are mm. known to be a family culture. So returning to become a place for families to land with us, land emotionally, land socially, and then maybe work on the mm -hmm. behavioral uh, needs of their children uh, we're trying to be very creative, uh, very uh, organizational and behavioral. Uh, and we're looking forward for a new presence of ABA Lebanon in the Arab world uh, after the crisis. I think we will have a lot That's to awesome. offer and a lot to talk about. So if, if people sort of from, you know, around the world that are listening uh, want, wanted to help out in some way, uh, are, are there, are there, are there, obviously I know you're open invitation to any sort of any Lebanese professionals around the world to connect with ABAL, absolutely. But if, say, yes. folks wanted to, you know, donate time or funding or whatnot, uh, where, where, where would they want it? Where could they do that? 
Well, they can reach okay. out to us on the Lebanese chapter. We have an email Perfect. that I can send to you that you can share on the podcast. Uh, we are also having a Facebook okay. page. Our website is coming up soon. So we would love to have people. I think we are in desperate need of supervision, supervision hours. We are also uh, creating programs for parents where we can teach mm -hmm. parents more and more ADA skills to help their whole family grow together. Uh, so we will have some programs that we might need some more mm. experts' hands to deliver, uh, maybe online and maybe on a physical Amazing. level if people are available to travel. Uh, the community has to yeah. come out from within, I think, and and pick up on the. Yeah, yeah. On the what do you mean by like more again? supervision? Like you need more people providing supervision, or yeah. Yes. Yes, we do have RBTs in Lebanon who are not getting enough hours from us because we're also involved by supervising people mm -hmm. who are in the institutions we work in. And uh, actually, the cause is like very demanding. So by the time we attend to so many things, our supervision mm -hmm. time is very limited. And uh, with the board uh, announcing January yes. 2023, the limitations for new uh, people joining and with the new boards coming up and doing creative and amazing work in order to standardize themselves mm. and and uh, being there, I think we'll have a gap of uh, more experts needing and not available mm -hmm. time and, and people. So if we can reach out from all over the world and make sure that RBTs are being followed up, mm. trainings are being offered, communities are being trained, then I think we can as much as possible uh, close these gaps and be there for the people to give them the security that the science is still there for them, you know, because we did face some level of frustration in Lebanon sometimes when we spoke about the ethics of the practice and the importance of being mm. scientific and all the dimensions of ABA. But then people were like, but you guys are overbooked. You guys are overloaded and we're not able to reach you, whether it's us or the other RBTs. So we do have always a shortage between the demand and the supply. And sometimes parents are just tired of waiting for us on the waiting list. And they might go to someone who is not certified or maybe a special education teacher who can be doing an amazing job but might not have learned ABA. So we do have these shortages that we want to be aware of and then maybe think creatively on how to expand ABA skills and non-ABA people also. A problem um, I've been... Um... Yeah, hearing okay. a lot about in my interviews uh, with with folks from a lot of countries sort of on the other side of the world, uh, mostly in Africa, um, is um, um, just because that's where I've interviewed people. Um, uh, but also the interview I did with uh, uh, mm -hmm. in, in Egypt as well with Radwa, um, uh, there seems to be a lot of RBTs. Um, and a lot of RB, a lot, lot of people just getting the RBT training and not getting supervision. Um, like you say, there's not enough supervision. And then sort of, yes. you know, offering services on their own and, uh, uh, without sort of any sort of behavior analyst supervision. Is, is that an issue as well in Lebanon? It is. Yeah. It is. And uh, we are facing the dilemma of. Uh, can we stop people from practicing? First, we don't have the legal way to do it. And even if mm -hmm. we, are we going to deprive families from anyone showing up at their door who knows a bit of ABA mm -hmm. and not much? And just tell them, keep on waiting until a BCBA is free to supervise the RBT and yeah. then just stay not doing anything. So 
we are facing this dilemma and we have to be really, really responsible because even the board, even all these uh, bigger institutions who are helping us become more uh, organized and become more uh, fluent with the skills, we also need to trust the human. Yeah. We need to trust ourselves and try as much as we can to raise awareness about the ethics and mm -hmm. trust that the human will continue to practice ethics, no matter what board or what uh, entity they belong to. So there is some kind of dilemma like, can we police people? Are we in a place to police people? Or are we able to offer an, an, an other option? Mm -hmm. Are we offering an alternative? And when we are not, so where do we stand? Are mm -hmm. we just going to be barriers mm -hmm. for the growth? Oh, even if it's a small growth, rather than like, you, if you're not able to offer solutions, like, okay, you continue to raise awareness, but then maybe that's what you need to continue to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not just be calling a family and saying, like, this person is not uh, certified, or which we never did. We try to reach out to people and ask them about their credentials and ask them if they need help how long they practiced and try to advise them. Like if you're uh, with early learners, you might want to stay there. If you don't get supervision, uh, try to uh, get as many trainings as you can, stay up to date, get your CEUs, even if they're not required, because mm. we have a lot of institutions today offering free CEUs. Yes. And by us listening to each other, Ben, like so much comes up, like we, we upgrade our knowledge, we refresh some things. So we try as much as possible to work on their internal ethical uh, mm. engine and also their sense of motivation. We want them to continue to be motivated. We want them to continue to be proud that they did something. Mm -hmm. So I think the human approach needs to be very much open and and uh, fair and also compassionate to yeah. the people who have the skills but might not get the the on on the track of being supervised today. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for Black and Brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The third secret word is mindfulness. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. That's really important. And another issue that I, I, I just heard about recently, which I never even considered, um, was that some of this problem actually in a way kind of falls on on some of the uh, the north american programs that are offering rbt courses in that they don't seem to have any sort of well i don't know this for a fact but it, it seems like they don't have any sort of you know rules around that and they'll just they'll just let anyone take the rbt training which is great that yes. it's available but they don't realize mm -hmm. that that leads to this sort of you know, surplus of RBTs yeah. and deficit of of, of, of supervisors and, and, and in some ways is actually creating more of a problem than helping. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, uh, I agree to this. But again, if we think about it with a, with a bigger uh, picture, like yeah. uh, 
uh, we've all had, for example, a high school degree and we apply to university. Yeah. And if I want to be a doctor, okay, after I learn medicine for seven years, then there will be some some legislations and some certifications for me to practice. Yeah. But then getting an RBT course, it is very clearly stating that you cannot become an RBT certified and you are supervised. Mm -hmm. So we need to also raise awareness from the parents' side. Because we had this discussion a couple of days ago and uh, someone was suggesting that uh, we have on the ABA Lebanon website a registry uh, for parents to uh, go to when they're looking for someone. And that is absolutely useful. And again, it makes me think like, why do parents in Lebanon don't look for the registry? Because this is a kind of cultural kill. Like if you are in the U.S., there is an understanding that if you want to go to the psychologist, you check the registry. If you're if you want a pediatrician and you're new to the town, then you go on the registry. Sure. So I think in Lebanon we need to raise awareness about the whole topic, about the ethical standards of every practice, the ethical and and legislation and certification, so that all people become aware that there are some some advocacies, there are some bodies. If you're an engineer, you need to belong to the engineering body, for example. Mm. Do you have the license or not? Because, you know, you're offering money and, and effort and time for people to offer you back services. No matter what it is, it is, I think, a responsibility for everyone to check about this registry, no matter what field, not only mm. BCBAs. Because when we have this general knowledge, then people will start to ask more questions. And and again, in Lebanon, like if, if you're taking services from someone, um, we are a bit shy to ask them, like, uh, have you been in the field for a long time? Uh, can you tell me more about your degrees? Mm. So I think the approach is, is still uh, shy in asking people about their legislations and uh, where they come from, what kind of autism populations they focused on. Mm. And this is where we need to activate. This is where we need to tell people that it is absolutely okay to ask therapists what they've done before and to ask about them and get recommended references and call the references. And on, on the other hand, like this will make us more powerful because if we trust what we've been doing, we shouldn't be scared. And when we are closing up on this information, then parents need to become scared. Mm. And this fear is protective and very useful. So it is not something that is... is because Lebanon is a place of hospitality and a place of welcome and a place mm. where everyone can find uh, what they need. But but this collective thinking needs to also include uh, scientific mm. uh, pathways, right. whereby when I'm taking my child to a clinic, it's different. Like I can ask more questions. It's not like I like the doctor and I'm going to be friendly with him. No, that's that's clinic. That's. That's something that can offer your child something or maybe not. Mm. So bringing more awareness on these conversations, I think, is much needed mm. in our context. Mm. Well, all right, let's um, let's switch countries a bit. Um, yeah. So you're you're not in Lebanon anymore. You're in Qatar. No. And you've been mm -hmm. there. You've been there a year now. Um, um uh, and 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 you left for sort of similar reasons that a lot of folks left yeah first off why did you pick qatar well i was uh exploring i was exploring different countries mm. i did uh, 
uh, apply to many countries. And uh, as a meditator, I check the energy with places. Mm. And uh, I like to be in a place that has similar values to my place, a place that is open and welcoming uh, with less racism and more uh, human uh, collective uh, acceptance. Mm. So uh, I did apply to some places. There were some different discussions and some discussions were not telling me this is not where I wanted to be. And then uh, with the Qatari discussion, I found that this might be a place for me and my family to move. Mm. So it was a beginning of aligning values, uh, checking uh, about the culture here. And indeed, Qatar is a very welcoming country. Mm. You feel at home. Uh, um, there's a lot of humility in the place mm. and a lot of uh, compassion. So I've never until now felt like I'm being isolated or not attended to. On the contrary, I find a lot of... Um, Compassion and empathy and this this quick uh, responding to someone who does not look from the country, mm. like they might need more from us, like they are here for a reason and we are there for them. Mm. So I am really very grateful for this uh, welcome and this cultural connection that I have in Qatar. Mm. Mm. And so are you, you're, you're obviously still doing ABA and, and, uh, yes, and, uh, and, and so what's, what sort of, You've only been there a year, but what's what's sort of a similar question asked before, about Lebanon? What's sort of ABA and autism in Qatar like? What's what? How are things different there? I think we're we're also witnessing uh, new wake ups, uh, new wake ups to the science, new wake ups to the importance of delivering a clinical uh, treatment for kids with autism. Mm. Uh, we are uh, meeting a lot of new parents. Uh, beautifully, we're seeing the mom and the dad together, mm. showing up to discuss an early learner, two years, two and a half years, willing to engage in parental coaching, willing to send their household people to be trained by us, uh, willing mm. to listen to scientific conversations. Mm. Um, we still see some different institutions in the place practicing different forms of ABA, if we can call it. Some is mixed with special education, some is strictly ABA, mm. some of it is ABA trauma-informed, and some of it is ABA old school maybe, uh, but the activity is rising, and mm. this is very promising. There are more uh, publicity about the place. I live close to uh, uh, one of the horseback riding, which is owned by the public sector, mm. and we're getting some new announcement that we can help kids with autism do horseback riding. Mm. Uh, this is beautiful, really coming up. Um, we do have places in the airport that are sensory rooms for kids with autism. Wow. During the FIFA, we had sensory rooms in all the stadiums. Wow. Uh, a lot of, uh, like fast track uh, cards were given. Uh, um, a lot of things were done really to make the students uh, more comfortable and the learners. Yeah. Uh, I think we still have a long way to go. Mm because the numbers are uh, increasing. And uh, the work right now is to improve our understanding of early intervention intensive ABA therapy, mm. which might not be something very familiar. Uh, we do explain to parents that yes, if your child is struggling with uh, detachment disorder, for example, mm. you might be engaging in one hour per week of play therapy. Mm. But for ABA, one hour per week doesn't work. ABA is about repetition, it's about uh, 
mastery, and we might need to consider 10 plus. And we're saying 10 because we are aligning ourselves with some research that was done in Beirut on early intervention. Mm. Uh, but again, research in the Arab world is still shy. Mm. We're still in the beginning of uh, finding more data regarding to our population. Mm. Uh, we know that the comprehensive ABA therapy required is 30 to 40 hours per week. Mm. I'm also seeing that if we can um, explore further ABA structured classes, in a context where we find that the community is more in favor, and we are actually more in favor of multidisciplinary classes where children can be in a in a classroom with more children, and they will have more like a variety of uh, uh, energy and exchange. Mm. Then absolutely, ABA classes can be uh, serving better the ABA journey, mm. the learning, and and the Skinner's pathways. And uh, this this is something that. I'm not so sure that in Qatar we've spent enough time on yet mm, mm, mm. because it can align very beautifully with the one-on-one -on -one ABA therapies and it can help us with the generalization and also it can help us to not to unlearn what we've learned because mm -hmm. this is what we worry about sometimes. Like if we are not all practicing the same tools, then children might be practicing something else and that something else can become mm. a barrier. So if we can align ourselves with that, I think it can be very powerful moving on with the structure of schools we have here. That's awesome. You said that there's some folks that are doing like kind of traditional old school ABA. Does, does that mean ABA has been in Qatar for quite a while? I think so. I'm new in Qatar, but mm. I think so, yes. Yeah. I think so. We do have some centers that are there for a long time. Long time, gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And what about just... Um, this might not be a Qatari question specifically, but what about um, what, what what you said? There's not a lot of research um, in autism in the Arab world, and that's definitely important. Is are are there are there is there like sort of schooling ABA training available in the Arab world anywhere? I think in Dubai and Abu Dhabi there are some course sequences mm. offered, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in Lebanon, we had gotten to a point before the revolution where we were really discussing with the university, mm. the course sequence, and we were like having very positive conversations, mm -hmm. but it stopped with the revolution. Yeah. Uh, there are some good uh, providers in the Arab world that are developing sequences like the, uh, the RBT programs mm. gotcha. that can uh, assist in competency building towards that, but we definitely need more. Yeah. We absolutely need more. Another thing you said that you said was really good about Qatar is that you uh, is is that uh, you said the mom and the dad are coming. Is yes. so is it not typical that both parents would come in sort of other settings? And that's is that a different thing in Qatar than sort I'm of other... saying this as a as a therapist in general, and I'm saying it from a perspective of uh, Middle Eastern and Arab therapists. Yeah. We do have, uh, and also in Lebanon, we do see that the mothers, uh, not everyone, of course, but there is always more presence for the mothers mm. in therapy classes, in therapy activities than the fathers. Mm. And this is more of a cultural uh, thing that fathers are more engaged in providing for the family mm. and mothers are more engaged with the children. And this is ancestry, of course, uh, on all on all countries in the world. 
So I am really impressed by seeing uh, perhaps this year in Lebanon, we might have witnessed the same. Or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We did see more fathers uh, coming along, uh, but I'm really, really very, very happy to see a lot of fathers and mothers are uh, on board mm-hmm. with all kinds of therapies for their kids. Really cool. You said when you were when you were looking for places to go, to, to countries to move to, uh, you were you wanted something to match your values, which is awesome. But you also said something about the energy um, um, and that you're a meditator. How does how does sort of mindfulness and meditation? Uh, well, first off, how uh, how did you kind of get into mindfulness and meditation yourself? And uh, and and sort of a little bit on that, and then how does that kind of fit into your work? So I started uh, practicing ABA in maybe let's say 2014, mm-hmm. the second year of my master's, and then my certification was concluded 2017. But in 2016, I started to ask more questions. I was uh, with many supervisors. I think something I was lucky to have on the way of supervision is uh, uh, I got supervision, uh, all the requirements from the board, of course, from BCBAs, Mm. but I also was more curious about other sciences like Mm. social psychology. Uh, So I did uh, do a lot of supervision with social psychologists that have opened my mind to Mm. so much. And I had a lot of questions regarding what is beyond behavior. And I felt sometimes when I'm working with children that there was something missing in the room. And I could not answer these questions through my ABA knowledge. Uh, And this is how I uh, landed on mindfulness. Uh, It was the beginning of a journey. One of my supervisors said, if she's ever going to be teaming up with me Mm. on any project, her only requirement would be that I study mindfulness. Hmm. So that got me very curious, and uh, I started to do courses in mindfulness, and hmm. uh, that was the beginning of another new learning for me that has brought me internally to understand that we do have thoughts, emotions, body sensations, and impulses, and there is a culture inside of us hmm. that is continuously interacting, a culture of thoughts, a culture of beliefs, a culture of, of values, a culture of, and unless we can build relationships and new forms of relationships because in many ways these cultures uh, can be fighting sometimes you would be not not aware of what you're doing or doing something that doesn't make sense but you don't know because you are breaking your values or Mm. you don't know because this is something that is expected from you Mm. but it does not align with what you believe in Mm. so Mm. by by understanding more of these uh, aspects of the human and by returning to myself Mm-hmm. And uh, considering the mindfulness attitudes and how they connect us deeply to ourselves and how they uh, help us uh, resolve issues with ourselves. And this is, I realized, must be required by every therapist. And I also realized that maybe in other sciences, and I don't want to be here comparing other sciences mm. because this is my only experience and yes. that's what I got to know. Uh, there is some kind of work on the personality of the therapist that during your supervision, your insecurities and securities, your childhood injuries, your traumas, whether you were raised in a place of poor or whether you were raised in a place like, for example, I I got to know when I was maybe 40 years old 
that I close my ears with a duvet when I sleep because when I was a kid, I used to close my ears with the duvet because there were bombing around our home. Mm. So, so there's so much to revisit when we want to start to become therapists. There's so much for us to clean, so much to align ourselves mm. with. And uh, I felt that mindfulness and my this way of being supervised allowed me to dive inside and understand more of what I want and what I don't want mm. and what gears me in this life. And this is where I understood more about my values. And we call them in ABA uh, motivational operations. In other sciences, they're called deep motivation engines. But when we study ABA for autism, motivational operations are more uh, practiced on the uh, basic needs like yes. the hunger, the, the tiredness, etc. Sure. But then today there is a bigger discussion that no values are our motivations, and we need to our, align ourselves to the values. The reason why I do not take this from someone, or the reason why I do not end this conversation, is because I'm compassionate, and I don't like breakoffs. I like to leave people in peace and mm. send them something that they can find later on and not really be suffering with themselves because of something I did. So understanding our personalities and our values uh, came to me through my mindfulness practice. Mm. And when we talk about energy, we talk about a lot of alignments. So uh, I do align myself with the students I work with. I align myself on the mind and the body. I arrive to them with an intention. And mm. one of the definitions of mindfulness is aligning attention with intention. Mm. So if, like your, if your intention is to jog for 30 minutes, then stay there. Stay with your body. Be focused with your breathing. Notice the things around you and try to, for example, stop overthinking. Try to think about your next meeting, uh, not to think about your mm -hmm. next meeting. Try to be there in the moment. So you can practice mindfulness in each and every activity you are by being present in the moment and mm. enjoying that experience of the moment and being there with your breath and aligning yourself there. Mm. So when I arrive to the children, my intention is to help this child. My intention is to make learning easier for them. Yeah. My intention is not to fix anything about them, is to accept them the way they are and help them find the light, which is the learning, which is the more skill-based uh, repertoire that they need in life in order for them to be more autonomous, more dignified, uh, more independent. So in order for me to do this, the first landing for me in every room would be, I'm here for you, and I do it in my mind. I'm here for you. I'm present for you. I will be there. And we're going to do this together mm. because this is not my journey. This is their journey. And also it is my journey because I need to learn from them. So respecting their presence in that mm. journey, respecting how they shift energy, during the time, like being mindful of when tacting becomes difficult, mm. like shifting to body exercise and coming back to language because it is very demanding. I'm tackling the area of struggle with them and that is suffering mm. and that is becoming trauma informed. Like, like mm. you don't keep on working with kids on things they lack. They also need to enjoy what they know. And also, and this, this again is the 80 20 we do, you know? So when you, when you understand more of this, you see that in ABA, there's so much of that. But maybe it was not articulated like that. Like, why do we mm. offer the child 80 20? Yes, we offer them easy moments and difficult moments. 
But did we really think about the word easy and difficult? Mm. Like, did we feel it in the body and understand that mm. how easy can it be and how difficult and how does that impact them each and every day they arrive to us? So I use mindfulness a lot with them in arriving. I use the, I do teach them breathing through mm. imitation mm. and they learn it beautifully. Mm. Mind opening when you just go like do this and, mm. and then you see the child following. And mm. then we're counting and then we pause and then we try again and then we pause. So that pausing also helps them to slow down, which is another thing we try to help people mm. learn in mindfulness, slowing down, pausing with the self and with the people. And that helps in impulse control too, because we know our kids with autism struggle with impulse control mm -hmm. and we do witness hyperactivity and difficulty with attending. So when we do things like fast, slow, pause, stop, which is a form of inhibition exercises, but they are mindfulness movements exercises. We see that the sciences align in some ways mm. when we understand exactly what we're doing and we name it correctly. Mm. And I'm happy that the ethics of the board says that we are invited to practice other sciences as long as we identify what we are practicing, make all stakeholders aware of it, mm -hmm. make it observable and measurable, and continue to surround it with all ethics required. Mm. And parents are very open for me uh, in some of the learners uh, combining ABA and mindfulness learning for them, mm. especially when I have learners who have difficulties in emotional regulation, following instructions, task achievement, sitting tolerance. A lot of mindfulness is brought in, in as much as the learner, of course, can can respond to. Mm. Really cool. Um, do you use it? Do you use mindfulness as well uh, um, with um, or teach mindfulness? I guess uh, with um, with the parents. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and what's and what's happened like? Yeah, absolutely. We, when we do parental coaching, we work on the family culture and we help parents understand their values and the values of the relationship. Because when we address students on behavior in, in a family context, it needs to be aligned with the value. So for example, oh, you've cleaned up your room. You're showing a lot of responsibility. If I'm a family that promotes responsibility, if I'm a family that mm. responds, promotes love, for example, as a value, and there is a kind of like framework for, for describing values from the social psychology aspect. So the parental coaching uh, is a very rigorous, and rich program that we offer. And I've been doing that for so many years. And parents find it very, very useful. Mm. And then we come to the point where we need to be present with the child. And that's what we also call quality time. Quality mm. time is finding moments during one week where you are fully present with the child. Mm. On the neurological level, just looking in their eyes and telling them, I want to do all what you want to do. I'm there for you, phones away, other meetings away. And then we we align ourselves again with a child who is seeking that long lost connection because of the frantic way we are living today. So um, mindful parenting is also very much appreciated by parents. They love breathing with their kids. Mm. Uh, kids imitate their parents by breathing. But mm. again, there's a there's a time where you can introduce it. like. Because parents address their kids with expectations. And breathing is not and never to be taught through an expectation. Mm. So in the beginning, we teach parents to find their breath alone. 
And when they are trusting this breath and becoming more familiar with it and more trusting to the science, and they find that it is giving them a lot of uh, um, additions to their life, like they're maybe more open, more cognitively flexible, uh, more relaxed at some times of the day. The conversations are more uh, healthy. Mm. Uh, they know their frustration. They know their uh, their objections. They know mm. when their fear comes up and they want to start a fight. Mm. So when we trust that the parent has arrived to a place where they now trust mindfulness, then we teach them how to uh, invite other kids in the family to, to begin that journey. Mm. It's very interesting how it happens. It yeah. is very gentle, yeah. very compassionate and very curious. And it is new. Yeah. It is new, but it's never new for the human because we are born with a breath. Right. The only thing new about it is that we made the very conscious decision to drop the breath and go to something else. Yes. So I think we are returning. We're just coming back to where we started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and is the same does the same go with the RBTs that you're supervising? Do you teach them as well? Slowly and gently, and it depends on how much time we have and what are the priorities and uh, what is their openness. Mm. Uh, Something very interesting you learn when you become a meditator and you coach people in mindfulness and meditation is that it is something very new and it can actually be very scary. Mm. We have lost the connection with the breath and returning to it is very unfamiliar. Mm. And... uh, This is why when you go for silent retreats, for example, one of the questions they ask you, how many minutes of meditation do you practice every day? Mm -hmm. Because if you are in the beginning stages, then sitting in a silent room for five days might not be the thing you are ready for right now. It is very scary. My first mindfulness retreat, (laughs) you know, you're sitting in that room and you're like, oh my God, like, what have I done? What brought me here? Like, am I crazy? How can I go silent for five days? It mm-hmm. is very scary. Very, very scary. And then when you talk to people later on, that mostly everyone who lands in this room for the first time uh, feels this fear. Mm-hmm. It is very scary. Even when you walk in the hallways, you're not allowed to exchange eye contact because mm-hmm. eye contact is also another form of communication. Mm-hmm. But the scariest part and the most enlightening part in all of this is the day we are invited to shift our eye gaze back into the room and look around and return to the social context. What you witness there, Ben, is the inability of the eyes to go up. Mm. You're giving the order that I want to be looking up, but Mm. your eyes are not following this order. The eyes prefer to stay private. The eyes prefer to stay looking down. And this is very enlightening. And so many of us have reflected that maybe we're taking so much through our eyes from the world that the system is so tired from this input. Mm. And going on this kind of detox or this kind of uh, retreat where you retreat back from this continuous exchange tells you that this has been really, really very, very aggressive. Like we need those shifts. We need them absolutely to give the system a break. Mm. We are doing a lot with our eyes and with the technology and all the social media. I wonder what our brains feel about us, actually. I wonder what they say to us internally Mm. about all this engagement that we are placing them in. 
Do you go on these retreats like regularly or? I try to do it once per year. Wow. I try, but during COVID, we were limited in resources and traveling, so I missed on some. Wow. Yeah, I've heard about them, and I've I've, I've had some some a, few, a couple of folks I've known go to them, and yeah, uh, I don't know. That sounds scary. Could are, are there shorter ones you can start with, or? Yeah, of course. You know, when when I wanted to go on the first one, this is how it happened. Uh, I found that they were all ten days, and ten days was a long stretch. <gasps> My kids were little, yeah. so and the scariest part was that you need to drop your the vipassana is you need to drop your phone in the airport and go on a bus and that was I think Nepal and after ten days you come back to your phone and for me as a single mom mm-hmm. that was very scary mm-hmm. I cannot like like disappear for ten days uh, so I did find another place in Portugal who were a more understanding of my motherly needs mm. it was shorter it was five days. And they said, try not to use your phone. But mm. if you have to, you just make one call in the evening mm. and only for your children. And it is so amazing because mm. as soon as I called the boys the first day, the second day, they did not contact me mm. and I did not contact them. Mm. I tried to do that. And it was like, now you see the trust of the energies. Mm. Like They just felt safe. Mm. Because I felt safe wherever I was. Yeah. And I allowed myself to have this time for myself. And they never contacted me until I saw them back in Beirut. Wow. So uh, they did show a lot of compassion and flexibility. And I loved that in them. Because even when we're introducing mindfulness, we should not be this harsh. We mm. have needs and obligations. And we need to be a bit flexible sometimes. Because if those people have not allowed me in, I might have postponed this milestone for I don't know when mm. until my kids maybe mm-hmm. are ready to never hear my my voice for ten days in a row. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Wow, that's something. Yeah, I mean, I, I know for me, I I I I don't I don't think I've been able to meditate longer than five minutes. So um, I, I can't imagine doing that for five days straight. You know, there is informal practice and formal practice, and informal mm. practice is way softer and. Uh, more uh, practical for us. For example, informal practice can be you walking in the garden and just mindfully listening to the sounds. Mm. So you're just picking up on sounds and then this is the first level and then the second level would be following the sound from beginning to end. And then maybe at, at another day you're doing it now trying to notice the space between the sounds, the space between the beginning and the end, but then the mm. space between the end of the one sound and the beginning of a new one. Mm. And you can do the same when you're walking around and noticing space between things in a forest, touching. So there are a lot of sensory activities we can do in mindfulness. You can wash your dishes by being mindful of the water, the temperature, the bubbles. And instead of washing dishes being maybe one of the most disturbing activities for me becoming (laughs) disturbing, I use it as a break. Like, okay, I'm going to take care of my mental health five to ten minutes and wash dishes. Mm. So I try not to think of anything except enjoy the water and the bubbles and the cleaning. And I show gratitude to my hands because if I didn't have those hands, I wouldn't be able to offer this love to my kids through Mm. washing the dishes for them. So this is where the attitudes come in, where Mm. we start to change the relationship we have with whatever we're practicing today. And this change in the relationship is enlightening, Mm. very much enlightening. Mm. That's neat. So maybe you want to try the informal practice. Absolutely. The mindful seeing, yeah. the mindful eating, the yeah, 
I, and I've never thought of uh, of you know I've heard of you know pay attention to the breath and paying attention to mm-hmm. the sounds and the tastes and the smells, but mm-hmm. this is the first time I've heard of paying attention to the space between. Zigzag is an autism therapy management platform. At its core, Zigzag seamlessly allows management of programs, adding, editing, changing long-term and short-term objectives on the go. Zigzag makes data collection super easy for therapists on-site and automatically calculates progress, providing you with session summaries and graphs in real time. Zigzag provides you the ability to manage all of your clients, whether they be center or home-based, and work with all the various therapists and parents seamlessly. Zigzag is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is fully compliant with both federal and provincial privacy requirements. Book a demo now at www.zigzagkid.com forward slash product demo and get a free 30-day trial. The third secret word is mindfulness. Yeah. It is beautiful. You can pay attention to the words if you're reading. If you're a reader, then you can pay attention to the word spaces between the words of your text and maybe also the spaces between the letters. Wow. It is very much it is very much enlightening and it expands how the mind looks at things. Mm. So you become slower, your impulse control becomes the and of course what I want to say is that Right now, what I'm saying is not commonly taught in mindfulness groups. In mindfulness groups, we try not to teach. We try to open the floor for people's experience, and they might be finding those on the way. Mm. Because if I say that and someone is not experiencing that, I'm Mm. limiting the learning. But I'm sharing it with you as uh, here in this uh, stage. So when we start to notice that there are space between things, there's a very important quote for Victor Frankl that says between stimulus and response, there is a space. Mm. And in that space lies our freedom to make choices. So in mindfulness, when we notice that we are angry, for example, it's an invitation for us to attend to the anger. So we start attending to the anger in the body, like where do I feel it? Where Mm. is it the most intense? Do I feel any, do I see any color? Do I feel any temperature? So we start to explore the sensory experience of anger. Mm. And in that time, we bought a space between being stimulated, like something came up, I got angry. And then usually maybe I might scream at someone mm. or maybe I'll, I don't know, I'll break something or whatever. As, as people who struggle with anger tantrums, for example. But when you spend some time shifting the attention to the body and the experience of anger, You notice that after that, your reactivity is less and your choices are more. Mm. So we hear people saying that instead of shouting at the other person, they say, can we talk about this later? Or maybe I'm not ready to talk right now Mm. or I need a break. So these choices are liberating us Mm. from other choices we used to have before that might be engaging us in shaming blaming feeling guilty why did Mm. i shout at this person Mm. i was disrespectful i feel ashamed of myself or i'm being blamed or accused so having this freedom of choice liberates the soul from doing things that the soul might not be in agreement with later on 
So this is what it means when we say between stimulus and response, there is a space. And this is not the only space. Everything we do is to slow down and then become more mindful of these choices. Hmm. And then again, we say like, of course you can fight. You can go back and fight if you want, <laughs> you know, but, but make that a mindful decision, right? Hmm. Not the reactive decision. So if you really want to fight, I once asked one of the uh, teachers, the Zen teachers in uh, one of the retreats, and I said, what are the limitations of kindness and how do we draw boundaries? You know, Zen teachers have this body movement that is very much like flowing beautifully. He used his hand and he said, kindness can cut like a sword. And when the hand fell, my heart fell. And I fell, and I said, tell me more. And he said, well, if you are being bullied and, and abused and you're suffering from other people's suffering, sometimes you want to cut and draw boundaries and use self-kindness. Mm. So by you being firm, that is not you being rude or mean. This is you being self-kind. Mm. So when we start to see that it is me and the other and kindness across the board and wise choices that you make mindfully with pauses, then things really unfold uh, with more groundedness and more humanity, I must say. Mm. That's awesome. Mm. So, so, so for the team, I still want to say something. Yeah. So for the teams, when I work with people, I am, I think, a collaborative and compassionate leader in the way I lead people. And mm -hmm. uh, I do see that there are some different tendencies uh, and there are some different levels of judgment. And in that, I show a lot of compassion because I also came from a society that has practiced a lot of judgment. But I also uh, worked for many years in order to transform that trait in myself. So I show a lot of compassion and uh, understanding I try to be very gentle and uh, I try to set some boundaries like let's spend 20 minutes on describing the problem and 80 minutes on describing solutions. Mm. I sometimes need to send things out in behavioral and measurable terms, but I give time, a lot of time for people to also be guided and say what they want, what works better for them. Mm. I do know that this is uh, sometimes a bit not understood, confused by thinking that this is someone who does not know how to draw boundaries or or but i'm still okay with that because i know the lesson behind it is bigger than this mm. and i am not there to fix anyone fixing people is indignifying them mm. people have their own path they are in the best position to choose to fix themselves if they want to mm. if that serves them we all need fixing actually uh if we want to take it like that so let's not pretend that uh we can fix anyone. Mm. It is a very personal decision to decide to do this internal work. Uh, I do trust humans in all their forms and colors. I do trust that everyone will have something useful and powerful and enlightening to say in the room. Mm. And I'm very passionate and patient in waiting to hear this enlightenment. Mm. So cool. I'm I'm really looking forward to going outside today into the garden and listening to some sounds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This has been this has been a really cool conversation. Hmm. Maybe also because it's early in the morning. It's it's uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm taking more of it in. Um, just maybe to kind of finish off. Um, yeah. What uh, what what are some of the things you kind of have on the go uh, and and sort of some 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 future goals for you know your life and your practice? I hope. I really, really hope, and I'm looking forward for sciences uh, to start to become more friends with each other. Mm. Uh, people who are leading sciences to have more open conversations and willingness to see the alignments and also to critically see the differences and be willing to um, come forward with a conversation that can allow everyone to contribute, mm. a conversation that uh, does not invite comparison or competition, but mm. invites people to show up, mm -hmm. be present, and share whatever they want to share, no matter how small or big it sounds like. Mm. Uh, for me, my vision is uh, very human and uh, looking forward to enlighten people to the power of the human and how much we have inside of us and how we can uh, make it easier for each of us and uh, and make it better for the march because the march is getting heavier it's getting uh, confusing we need to really identify our marches where we want to be mm. and uh, who are the people we can help and who are the people we are not able to help mm. due to a decision due to a decision they made that they do not need help we need to respect people's intentions mm. it is their path and uh, i think what i've learned at 40 i so much look forward to my children learning earlier in order to find peace with the self mm. to understand that uh, it starts from inside out to be transcendental in how they call, look at the world and how they see the beautiful traits in the other and not be judgmental and look for the whatever is not available we do we all of us have lacked and uh, maybe maybe institutional work I find we need a lot of work on institution mm. uh, we created institutions to serve us but I'm not sure today if institutions are serving us mm. I'm not sure if we still are aligned with the intention uh, there is so much control that is happening which is becoming very unconscious and mm. uh, very uh, uh, confusing and misleading. So our conversations are losing their sense of purpose mm. in some ways, but we can bring this back by being in a room and finding out why am I in this room? What brings me to this room? Mm. Very small questions that I can have. And if there's nothing for me in the room right now, maybe something in the next five years. So it's better for me to leave the room today. Mm. And maybe there's a chance to return after five years. So if we can really, really feel and connect to our deep motivation, then our conversations, our projects can become more aligned and more efficient and will deliver on the purpose and be not misled by the purpose. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, Rola Elanan, thanks for coming on the podcast. I, I, I kind of feel enlightened this morning. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor.